moniker for phase two, if you will, from today on. It's sort of game on moment for us as a church. And one of the ways that that is true is uh, we are really excited to welcome uh, Grace Cooper as our newest staff member. She's stepping into the role of children's ministry director. She got started on Tuesday, right? of this week and uh, just kind of getting her feet wet right now. But we wanted to acknowledge that she has started and then we also wanted to take a moment to uh, celebrate that and and to sort of commission her in this role as she takes on uh, leadership of our children's ministry. So I'm going to invite Grace to come up. You guys can welcome her and then any elders who are here can join me on stage. And as they all make their way up, Grace's uh, or at least part of her family are also here. I'm not going to invite them on the stage because I was told not to do that. But they are here right over there, uh, and you guys can greet them and make them feel welcome here uh, after the, the gathering this morning. All right, Grace, welcome. We are so glad that you are here. And again, what a blessing it is to have her and her family be a part of our team. I want to ask one of you guys, I don't know who it is who's going to pray, but if one of you would be willing to pray, we'll, uh, I'll, I'll invite you guys to sort of extend a hand as we commission together as a community, Grace and her family. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to just uh, take a moment to just say thank you. Thank you, Lord, for loving us so well, for bringing us all together here as a community, Lord, of your children. Lord, we are really excited for uh, Grace to be here. We're excited for what that means in the life of our church, uh, what it means, Lord, for our families and for our children, and just the ways, Lord, that you are continuing to demonstrate your love for us. Uh, Lord, we know as Grace and her family are new to this area, we just pray that you would just bless and be with them, Lord, uh, that you would help them to just establish a firm footing here, Lord, um, with with their home, with relationships in, in uh, the Davis area here, Lord, um, and that you would just also really make this time here, Lord, at Discovery and this place be just a special place for them where their gifts are utilized, Lord, of where they are uh, just experiencing your love day to day. Um, Lord, we know that you have gifted grace in this area, and we are so thankful for that, Lord. Um, We're thankful um, just for who you have made her to be, and so we just ask, Lord, that you would just release that gifting in her, that you would be a blessing upon her and her family, Lord, and then uh, that that would overflow into the rest of us too, Lord, that we would experience the blessing of having Grace and her family here as part of the Discovery family. And so, Lord, we ask just for these things. Uh, and again, thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 <clears throat> thank you. <clears throat> All right. It is good to be back. It's good to have Rolly back. You can clap for that, yeah. <laughs> I think so. No, it's good to have Rolly back again. Thank you, Mark, for, uh, for leading and giving him and his family the opportunity to have that break. I think it was uh, a good thing for them to be able to do that. Uh, good for us to go on vacation, too. We had a great time uh, in Santa Cruz uh, doing a couple of different things, but the last two weeks have been very rejuvenating for our family. And like I said, today really feels like the beginning of phase two or chapter two or 2.0, whatever you want to call it. But from here on, uh, in my opinion, it's game on for us, you guys. So I'm really uh, excited and and fired up about this morning and about what lies ahead. I know that we'll have, you know, 
kickoff stuff happening in the next couple of weeks, and, and students are still coming back, and it might feel like we're in the middle of summer, but again, from, uh, from today on, it is, uh, it is time to get after it, and I'm very, very excited about what lies ahead for, uh, for our church. All right, I know we just prayed, but I want to pause uh, and pray again uh, as we turn our attention to Matthew. We're winding down our series, our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, I want to pray for this moment, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the gift of today. Thank you for the gift of rest and uh, for what that uh, means for, uh, for us, that you are a God who models rest and who invites us into that rest. Father, we pray now, though, as we begin to gear up for the fall, as we begin to look to the future and uh, some of the next steps for us as a community, that you would give us courage to follow your leading and uh, to go on this adventure together, to see what you have for us, to see what it looks like to live uh, into this mission of helping people discover the good news of Jesus. Fathers, we turn our attention to uh, this particular passage today. It is big, it is difficult, it has caused people uh, all sorts of, of trouble in understanding and interpreting over the last 2,000 years. So please give us a great sense of clarity as we move through this together this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Rolly alluded to a, a few moments ago, we do this thing here uh, at Discovery called the Marinade. Um, it used to be called, I think, Teaching Team. Liz was a part of that and, and contribute, contributed to that significantly uh, over the last year. Um, but it, it's a way for us to sort of be out ahead of what we're doing when it comes to Sunday morning and when it comes to the teaching here. And in fact, we're, we're very uh, far planned out ahead, if that makes sense, um, all the way through 2020. And, and a quick side note about that, sometimes people will hear things like that and, and they'll kind of have this like, oh, where's the room for the Holy Spirit to move in that? And, and I think that there's this uh, idea that sometimes creeps into thinking, especially in church, that for the spirit to move, we need to be unplanned, unprepared, and it just has to sort of be off the cuff. And that's when the Holy Spirit shows up. And there's definitely moments where that happens. But I do wonder if sometimes the Holy Spirit is not like, hey, I like to be prepared too. Like maybe we could work on this together uh, over a period of time instead of just winging it week in and week out. So all I've got to say is we do this planning ahead to allow the spirit time to move, to marinate with us as we sit in these passages of Scripture. And so that team helps speak into uh, what happens here on a particular Sunday morning. We create a big idea. We try to figure out what are ways that we can, can communicate that big idea through either the teaching or songs or other creative elements. And then again, we sit with it for about a month and, uh, and then it happens, you know, when we get to that particular Sunday morning. Now, all of that to say, that system really got put to the test this summer with Rolly being gone, with me being on vacation. And so here we are on Sunday, August 11th, in, in the biggest chunk of Matthew that we are doing in any particular week. So we're looking at two whole chapters. It is uh, the fifth of five big teaching sections that Jesus gives in this gospel. It's about the future. It's about end times. It's about things that are happening right now. It's very confusing. And of course, I was in, in Santa Cruz on Friday afternoon packing up a tent. And now here I am 
48 hours later, is supposed to give you this like incredible wisdom about what's called the Olivet Discourse by scholars. So all I have to say is I think our marinade, our teaching team work has really paid off because I had no idea what I was going to say this morning. I was going back through my notes. I was like, oh, yeah, this is pretty good. We're going to have a good time. All right? So if you have a Bible, open with me to Matthew chapter 24. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand, and someone on our team would love to come around and make sure you have a Bible. Also, if you need a Bible, not just for this morning, but for life, uh, feel free to take that with you uh, as you go off today. All right, Matthew 24, we're actually going to be looking at, at three chunks of Scripture, one, uh, two from Matthew 24, one from Matthew 25. And again, this is the fifth uh, of uh, five significant teachings that Jesus delivers in the Gospel of Matthew. It's called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, and it appears in some form in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It is a significant teaching that Jesus Delivers. Remember that um, these discourses in Matthew are reflective of his attempt to connect with his primarily Jewish audience. And so these five discourses mirror, in a way, the five books of Torah Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, as I said, this teaching is difficult. It's hard for us to understand. It has caused massive confusion throughout. History. What is Jesus doing here? He's going to be talking about some things that seem like they're happening at the moment that he's speaking to his disciples. It's going to feel like he's talking about things that might happen in the near future, things that might happen way off, even after our time. And the other uh, element here that causes confusion is the type of language that Jesus uses. He uses some parables, which we've seen him use before, but he also uses a language called apocalyptic Language. This appears in several places throughout Scripture. It appears in the Old Testament in books like Daniel and Ezekiel. It appears in the New Testament in a book like Revelation. And in fact, Revelation, that word in the Greek, is the word apocalypse. Apocalypse translates as uncovering or revelation. This is language that reveals, but in an indirect or coded way. This should for those of you who've been a part of this journey, this should sound familiar to us when we've talked about the parables. We've talked about Jesus telling the truth, right, but telling it slant, revealing, but in an indirect way. Now, in the parables, Jesus did that to invite participation, right, to get the hearers into the story with him. Here, that coded language is about the reality, the context in which these uh, uh, books were born. So Daniel and, and Ezekiel, born out of a time when the people of Israel were in exile, far from home, living under an oppressive government where they could not just come out and say, man, these Babylonians are a bunch of jerks. I can't wait till we get to go back home. Right? You couldn't say that kind of stuff. Instead, you might say something like this. There before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. Right? You guys totally understand what that is all about. So I don't need to explain that one this morning. But this is the kind of thing, we read these passages and we're like, what in the world is this about? We don't understand what's going on. There's a reason for that. This was coded language. It was meant to obscure. It was meant to only be understood by sort of the insider who was reading it. 
Now, it was about coding and about telling the truth, but telling it slant. But it was also, apocalyptic literature is also about pointing towards a more hopeful future. A future where God would intervene, where God would, and a lot of writers will use this kind of language, God would interrupt the current age and usher in a whole new age. Babylon would be conquered and we get to go home. Rome will be driven out and we will be free of this persecution. All right, this hopeful future. Now, as I said, Jesus complicates things again by using this kind of language, by talking about events that seem like uh, they're really far off, some that seem like they're about to happen. It was confusing for the disciples in that moment. We need to be uh, clear on that and give ourselves a little bit of grace. Even the disciples sitting there uh, at Jesus' feet, having spent three years with him, don't fully understand what he's talking about. And neither do we 2,000 years later looking back through history. Now some people have approached these kinds of passages, have approached this passage in particular, again, as a code. Oh, if we can break the code, we can figure out how everything is going to go down. A number of years ago, eight years ago now, in fact, there was a man named Harold Camping. Some of you may remember this. He's actually from Oakland. Go Oakland. Uh, who, who read all these passages and did some math and figured out that May 21st, 2011, the world was going to come to an end. I, I remember this. We were not actually living in Oakland at that time. We were living in Boston, and he had taken out these like massive ads on the T, the public transportation in Boston. And I'd be writing the T, and it'd be like, the end is coming, May 21st, 2011. It was like a movie trailer kind of thing. The world did not end on May 21st, 2011, and so he changed it to October 21st, 2011. And then the world did not end then either, and so at that point, I'm not sure what happened. I think he just gave up and stopped trying to crack the code. But this is one of the ways that people have approached this sort of passage. What does this mean, and is there some sort of way that we can figure out how it's all going to go down? Now again, big section, two whole chapters. We don't have time to go through the whole thing in, in, you know, and look at every single detail here. So what we're going to do is look at three different chunks. And then we're going to talk about the big themes. There's two big themes here that Jesus wants us to see. And then I'm going to walk us through two responses. So if you have your Bibles, look at Matthew 24. We'll read the first 14 verses together. And then we'll talk about this and move on to, to chunk two. Okay? Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? He asked. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Then as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming to end the end of the age. Here again is that language. When is this age going to end and the next age going to begin? Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. But see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these 
are the beginning of the birth pains. Then, and here comes Jesus' pep talk, then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. <laughs> Very encouraging for the disciples. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. If you've been with us for this journey through Matthew, this should be ringing some bells for you. Preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So going back one week, Matthew chapter 23, Jesus just drops the mic on the Pharisees, like just finally like lets them have it, no more holding back, no more you know, niceties, just lets the Pharisees have it, right? The religious leadership of his day, calling out their gross hypocrisy, and then he leaves. But you get the sense there at the beginning of this passage, Matthew 24, the first couple of verses, that Jesus is not done yet. He feels like there's a couple more things that he wants to say, knowing that there's going to be some backlash to what he just did. He wants to get this sort of last thought to his disciples before facing the consequences for what, what he said. So he begins here by predicting the physical destruction of the temple. And this is a thing that would happen within the next 30 to 40 years. Sometime between A.D. 60 and 70, Rome came through and destroyed the temple in what is called the First Jewish War. The disciples ask him a follow-up question to that. And again, their question is good. We've seen this before, right? Well, Jesus will say something uh, sort of crazy or audacious or difficult to understand, and the disciples will go to him and say, hey, explain to us more. We've talked about how this is the secret of the kingdom, right? Pursuing more from Jesus. This is great, but their question reveals that they're still sort of uh, stuck in what we've been calling this old paradigm. When is the old age going to end, the new age going to begin? What time, or what will be the time of your coming? And the Greek word here is parousia, arrival. When will you arrive as king and begin a new age? This is the question that's been on their minds for a while now as Jesus continues to talk about his death. What is it going to look like for Jesus to become King, when is the current age, or in our parlance, when is the old term going to be up and the new term going to begin? Good question, but again, an old paradigm question. And Jesus' answer begins to usher us in and once again invite us into this new paradigm of the kingdom of heaven. His answer, difficult to comprehend because of the apocalyptic language because of the toggling back and forth of the timeline, and then also because of what theologians refer to as the already and the not yet reality of the kingdom of heaven. There are aspects of the kingdom of heaven that have already taken place, that are already true, that are a reality in our world today, and then there are aspects of the kingdom of heaven that have not yet come to fulfillment. And again, this tension, I think, creates a lot of confusion for us in a passage like this. 
We'll talk more about this over the next couple of weeks as we get into the crucifixion and resurrection stories. But Jesus is king. Through his death and his resurrection, he has become king. And he is ruling even now as we speak. And yet at the same time, there is this truth that the full redemption and restoration of creation has yet to happen. And we know this, we feel this, we see this in the craziness and the messiness and the brokenness of our world. Still waiting for that complete redemption. Now, despite the confusion, there are a couple of things that I think Jesus makes very clear here, all right? So let's walk through some of these things. One, this is going to be a messy and confusing process. Living in the tension between what's already happened and what is still yet to come, it's going to be messy and confusing. And so he says, don't be deceived. Two, it's going to be very easy to get caught up in speculation. We just talked a little bit about this, but that temptation to want to crack the code, to want to understand what all the events around us mean. Very easy to get caught up in that conversation. And then three, in the tension between the already and the not yet, the primary goal, Jesus says, is to stand firm and to preach the good news of the kingdom to all nations. The goal, again, not to understand everything, but to stand firm and to preach the good news of the kingdom to all nations. And this is the thing we cannot miss. We cannot miss this. In the midst of one of Jesus' most perplexing teachings, there's one thing that he is incredibly clear on. And he's been very clear on this all throughout our journey through Matthew. It is his mission. Extremely clear on his mission. Another fancy word for us today is the word telos. Telos means an ultimate uh, object or aim. Throughout our journey in Matthew, we've seen many clues that, the, the, that God's ultimate aim, his telos, is to finally see his kingdom opened to everyone, to all nations. We've seen this going all the way back to the genealogy of Jesus. We've seen it in the arrival of the Magi at his birth, these, uh, these wise men from the east. We've seen it in the diversity of his team. We've seen it in the inclusion of women and vital roles in this story. We've seen it in the ways that Jesus reaches out to and affirms Gentiles. We've seen it in Jesus' anger at those who would create obstacles to entry into the kingdom. We've seen from Genesis 12 that original promise to Abraham. That his family would be a blessing to all the families of, of the world. To Isaiah chapter 56. And again, all throughout Matthew, culminating here in chapter 24. This whole thing, the big story of scripture, is all about the good news of Jesus. The good news of this kingdom being accessible to everyone. To all nations. To all families of the earth. And then Jesus says, this is so interesting to me how often we skip right over this. Jesus says, once this is accomplished, then the end will come. You want to know how it's going to end? There's no code to crack. Preach the gospel to all nations and then the end will come. Don't spend your time on the code. Don't try to gauge if, you know, this moment in history is more depraved than some other moment in history. Focus on the mission. Help people discover the good news of Jesus. That is what is going to change the course of history. 
Now, skip down with me to verse 42. This is going to be our second chunk here. Jesus says, therefore, keep watch. Pay attention. Because you do not know what day your Lord will come. Again, we don't know how it's all going to go down. But pay attention. Keep watch. Understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Then he tells a story. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. And he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. There's that word again connecting us back to chapter 23. Jesus just let the Pharisees have it for being hypocrites. Where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now the first part of this story should be familiar to anyone who's ever had a job who's had to work for a boss, right? There's this tendency when the boss is around for everyone to kind of be on top of their game. And then when the boss is gone, you kind of relax a little bit, right? I see this with my kids. When I ask them to, to clean their room or do some chore, it tends to go better when I'm in the room with them. Uh, and then if I leave the room, I come back and it's like messier than when I had left, Right? This is sort of our tendency as human beings. We kind of relax when the boss is gone. Now, that being said, this story has some pretty ominous language in it, but it's not about creating fear. Oh, what if, what if they come back? What if he comes back? It is about creating urgency. This story is not about creating fear. It is about creating urgency. The task that we have is important. This task can change the course of history. And the consequences are massive. So keep watch. Be faithful. Don't get distracted. Now from here, Jesus, he already told a story, but he's going to tell three more. Chapter 25, his final teachings are parables, are stories. We've talked about this before, the importance of story. Now what stands out about each of these stories is that they are all grounded in very earthy metaphors. Weddings and work and business and money and hunger and thirst and sickness. Things that real people deal with on an everyday basis. One of the tendencies of those who get caught up in some of the eschatological conversations about the end of the world is that they get totally detached from the reality of the moment. It's a very easy temptation to fall into because we think, oh, the future, it's very spiritual, we're we're kind of heavenly minded, and that can be very easy to elevate in conversations in church. But Jesus' vision of the future is not an escapist vision. There is hope. Right? The return of Jesus, the resurrection 
of the dead, the restoration of all things. But that hope in Jesus' stories always fuels our participation in this life right here, right now. It's not about drawing us away from it. It's about entering more fully into our reality. Now, the story that illustrates this, I think, the best is the last story that Jesus tells. So look at Matthew 25, verse 31 with me. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people. There's that phrase, all the nations, right? He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. He will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Watch this. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and, and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then, he will go away, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Once again, this is the end of the final discourse in Matthew, this is Jesus' last teaching, his last words uh, in this format anyway to his disciples. And it is about ultimate things. And yet it is so different than how ultimate themes, uh, things are typically presented in the church. Notice what Jesus does not talk about. He does not talk about beliefs or doctrines or did you pray the right prayer or coming to the front of a building at the end of a worship service, or signing up for a discipleship class, he talks about six very tangible things. Food for the hungry, water for the thirsty, hospitality for the stranger, clothing for the naked, care for the sick, visitation for the prisoner. Now, there are a couple of uh, I'll just call them poor interpretations of this story that I hear from time to time. I want to address those for just a moment. Uh, these are what I would call very narrow interpretations of this story. One of them is this. There's this argument out there that when Jesus says, brothers and sisters of mine, he is referring only to Christians. 
that our service of feeding the hungry, water for the thirsty, all those things is about serving Christians. I think there are two problems with this narrow interpretation. One is within the story itself. The righteous, the sheep, they don't even realize what they're doing. When did we do this, they ask. There's a sort of holy naivete here which works against this discriminating type of service prescribed by this narrow interpretation. And then the other problem has to do with the larger scope of the discourse and the larger scope of the book of Matthew and of Scripture itself. Jesus has consistently demonstrated the expanding nature of the kingdom. All nations, all families, the whole world. Why then, at the very end of all of this, would he pull back and say, oh, but only serve a limited group of people? Now, he's making a very profound statement here. Anyone made in his image, every human being is his brother and sister. And so we do not discriminate in our service. We serve with that holy naivete and we let God sort the rest of it out. One more thought. There are some of my friends who, who come from a particular theological bent who get a little squeamish with this story because it sounds like it, it, maybe Jesus is saying we have to earn our salvation. That we have to do these six things in order to make sure that we're in, that we're a sheep, that we're on the right side of the separating of the sheep and the goats. I want to let that hang for just a moment. Does our salvation depend on what we do? The story is not about earning salvation. Jesus, the, the writers of the New Testament, make it clear over and over again, there's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. It is the free gift of God. God the Father giving his son Jesus to die in our place, to die on that cross, to overcome sin and death through his resurrection. It is a free gift. There's nothing that we can do to earn that favor and that merit. However, that does not mean that what we do or don't do doesn't matter. Our actions matter significantly. And we should see that not just in this story, but in everything that Jesus has been saying in this discourse. Our actions matter significantly. This brings us back to a concept from a couple of weeks back. The unity of spiritual orientation. You are a whole being. You cannot have one posture towards God and another towards people. Jesus invites us into integration, into being a whole person. The, the marriage of belief and action. Followers of Jesus provide food and water and hospitality and clothing and care and visitation, not to earn anything or to prove anything, but because it's who we are. It's what sheep do, according to the story. We just do it with a holy naivete because it's who we are. 
Now, I want to boil all of this down to two big themes at the risk of being reductionistic. Two big themes I think Jesus wants us to see here. Again, in his final speech to his disciples, the first one is this call to stand firm, the theme of faithfulness. Jesus wants his disciples to know it's going to be hard. It's going to get crazy. Things are going to get weird. And again, the goal, not to understand all of it, but to be standing when the end does come. The second big theme is the call to be ready and keep watch. The call to hope. At the risk of over-repeating myself, being ready and keeping watch does not mean trying to figure out, oh, this earthquake means this and that war means this and all that kind of stuff. This is how many years we have left. No one knows the time. When Jesus says keep watch, he's talking about hope. He's talking about pay attention to where the kingdom of heaven is breaking in around you. We do not hope in the timing. We hope in Jesus. Are you with me? We do not hope in the timing. We hope in Jesus. We hope in his return and all that that will mean for the world. And that future hope shapes how we live in the present moment. And so let's talk about two responses. The first response to all of this is to share the good news of Jesus with people. All nations. And there's a lot of different ways that this can look. We, we share through relationships that we build. We, we share through the asking of good questions. And, and through conversations, wrestling through doubts together. We, we share the good news of Jesus through our experiences, pointing to the things that we have seen. We share the good news of Jesus through meeting needs. At Discovery, this happens both organically and structurally. Some of them just, a person sees a need and they meet it. It just sort of happens again over conversation. Sometimes groups will do something together and then there are times when we will do things as a whole church. But part of our responsibility as a community is to help each other share that good news with people. What does it look like for us to share the good news of Jesus with those around us? Jesus' goal in speaking about the future, about the telos, the ultimate aim of history, was to motivate his disciples towards mission. It wasn't to give them a a secret map to how it was going to go down. It was to motivate them towards the mission of sharing the good news. And it should be the very same for us. Because again, this is world-changing, history-altering stuff. This kingdom of the gospel will be preached to all nations and then the end will come. Secondly, we demonstrate a faithful and hopeful posture towards the future by serving the least of these right now. One of the big projects for us as a church, again, as we enter in phase two, chapter two, whatever you want to call it, is working through what it looks like to serve in this way, the 4th of July event, certainly part of that. Operation Backpack, certainly part of that. Uh, the team that we sent to San Diego to serve with Kaleo, part of that. The missionaries that we support are part of that. But that is just the tip of the iceberg. We are just getting started. And over the course of the next year and on into the future, as a church, we are going to be inviting you to express generosity towards the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, 
and the prisoner and wherever else God leads us on this adventure together. Now maybe you hear that list and it feels intimidating. It's okay, I feel intimidated by it too. Like I said at the very beginning, we we think about these gatherings weeks ahead of time and, and even before we got to this one as a team, I had been thinking about Matthew 25 for a while. I just had this sense. This was an important passage of Scripture, an important moment for us in our journey through Matthew for us to sit with and think about and respond to. And so I started praying about it several months ago. And one of the things that really stood out to me as I prayed through that list was, I was in prison and you did not look after me. Now, this list that Jesus gives is not meant to be sort of a checklist of righteousness. Okay, do these six things and then you're good, right? But of those other things, I have at least some level of experience. This one really stood out to me. I've never visited anyone in prison until about a month ago. By the time that I really started thinking about this, praying through this, a woman visited our church and told me about her friend who was in jail, and she asked if I could visit her. I had the chance to do that just before we left for vacation. And um, she actually has some history here at Discovery. And it was this very profound moment for the two of us to connect. Shortly after that, I found out about a a friend of mine uh, from Oakland who had been arrested and who was in jail. And I've been uh, visiting with him on, on these video chats for the last couple of weeks. And then not long after that... I got a letter at the office from a gentleman who's been in the California Correctional Institute for almost 30 years. His name is John, and he's become a Jesus follower. He's from the Stockton area, and there's a chance that he might be paroled in the next couple of years, and he's starting to think about what his next step in life is going to be. Over the time that he's been in prison, his parents have passed away, Uh, several of his uh, close family members have passed away. He's kind of the only person in his family left that he knows. And he's, he's just deeply desiring community, especially with people who believe in this Jesus. And so he wrote a bunch of letters to churches kind of in, in the Davis, Sacramento, Stockton area. And I got another letter from him. I'm the only one who wrote him back, apparently. And just, again, th- this man who is deeply desiring community. Now, I share all this to say I have no idea what any of that means. Again, this is not something that had been on my radar until a couple of months ago. I don't know what God is doing with this, but I sense that he's doing something. (laughs) That's my uh, intuition working right there, huh? He's doing something. And so what I wanted to do this morning is invite you guys into this story with me. Again, not knowing what the, the outcome of any of this will be. When you walked in this morning, you should have gotten a, a like half sheet of blank paper. And if you didn't get one, that's fine. There's some on the communion tables here around the theater. What I, what I would love for you guys to do is to join me in writing letters to John. And uh, we don't have time today for you to write like a big long dissertation about your life or whatever. I'm just asking for a very short word of encouragement. John, I'm praying for you. John, here's a verse that's been encouraging to me. John, uh, we are rooting for you here in Davis. Whatever you want to write, just 
whatever God prompts you to share, just something short and encouraging. And then if, if you don't mind, sign your name to it. You don't have to put your phone number or anything weird like that, but just uh, I think the, the receiving a letter from someone with a name I think is important for John. So as we close our time today, we're going to close the way that we normally do. We're, I'm going to pray here in just a moment. We're going to sing a couple of songs. The communion elements are available for you uh, when you're ready to come and take communion. But as we reflect on this, what does it look like uh, to follow Jesus' teaching here and now? Our hope for the future impacting how we live here and now. As Jesus gives this final teaching to his disciples, what does he talk about? He talks about faith. Stand firm. He talks about hope. Keep watch. Be ready. And he talks about love. Make disciples. Share the good news. Serve the least of these. Faith, hope, and love. May we grow in our ability to demonstrate faith, hope, and love to a world that desperately needs good news. Let's pray. Father, this is a, a massive teaching that we have just skipped the surface of this morning. And while there's a lot of uh, details and a lot of interesting stuff that we could dive into and get um, uh, really deep into, these big themes of faith, of hope, of standing firm, paying attention, sharing the good news, serving the least of these. May we focus on what is important. May we focus on your mission. Uh, the one thing that you say with great clarity is that this sharing of the goodness of the kingdom must go to all people for the end to come. And so may we be a community not motivated out of fear, uh, not motivated out of uh, obligation, but a community motivated out of love to share the good news with as many people as possible. Father, would you grow our hearts to do this? God, for some of us here this morning, we, we just need to accept that love for ourselves. And if that's the step that, that someone here this morning needs to take, God, may they have the courage to do that. Finally, God, we, we pray for our new friend, John. We have no idea where this relationship is going. But would our words be a blessing to him and encourage him in his process of healing and restoration and reconciliation. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.